Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. It's Thanksgiving week. And by the time you hear this podcast, President Barack Obama will have already performed his ceremonial turkey pardoning duties. But here in the last few months of his presidency, Obama will have a few more acts of mercy on his mind as he heads for the exits. Today, we'll discuss presidential pardons and commutations and whether or not Obama will be able to fulfill an ambitious clemency plan. Meanwhile, as Donald Trump mulls the activities he'll pursue at the beginning of his presidency, attention has turned to his infrastructure proposals, which are typically the sort of thing that could earn him a lot of bipartisan buy-in. But is Trump's plan on the level, or is it just another con? Joining us to discuss the matter is journalist and author David Dayan. And finally, congressional Democrats are still at sixes and sevens, nursing their electoral wounds, girding themselves for a lame duck session, and planning for the years ahead. We'll catch you up with what Democrats are thinking about up on Capitol Hill and how they might challenge and or collaborate with a Donald Trump White House. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Jen Bendery, Arthur Delaney, and Ryan Riley. Here's what happened first. Hello, America and everyone around the world. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly politics podcast from the good people at the Huffington Post. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. And if you're hearing this, you are probably celebrating some form of Thanksgiving because that's this weekend. And uh, we really appreciate you making time for us on a weekend that's normally spent with family and friends and food and football. Um, So we have a, you know, a little bit of Thanksgiving theme to talk about this week. And right off the bat, we're going to talk about uh, something you may already be a bit familiar with, because by the time you've heard this, you probably have seen President Obama pardon a couple of turkeys. Uh, It'll be maybe the last liberal thing you see in America for a while. So soak it in and enjoy it. Um, But we're also coming to the end of uh, Obama's term. It's a lame duck session. It's a time where uh, a young president's thoughts naturally turn to things like pardons, uh, not just of turkeys, but of people. And we're going to talk about what could become a big news story very soon and making and, and teaching you to differentiate between things like pardons and commutations and clemency actions. And so to get into that, we're really glad to have Arthur Delaney. He's here, obviously. Yep. Uh, Zach Carter, still on vacation. Did. Made, <laughs> presumed alive. No one, no one is claiming that Zach Carter is dead. But sitting here with us, uh, criminal justice reporter Ryan Riley. Hello. And it's really great to have you here. Um, so we want to just, I guess, start with just sort of some term definition here, because we we all know that you know the president has these has this authority to radically well, alter criminal sentences. Well, before I mean, before we even get to terms, okay, back up even more. Let's just talk about how the highest profile pardoning that any president does is usually the turkeys. 
Yeah, that's true. It's like weird. It's a hilarious gag. It's a long tradition. But fact check, <laughs> President Obama has pardoned more people than turkeys. That was wasn't true a few years ago, which was a headline I I got to write. Uh, well, he yeah I mean so yeah he a pardon in terms of pardons on pure pardons is that is that true now no, no he is actually it might be close but he's close. done let's put it this way he's issued more clemency actions for people than Correct. for turkeys. Correct. Now why is that distinction important, Ryan Riley? So essentially, you know, with clemency, you're not talking about wiping out or removing someone's record. Uh, you know, when you give someone a pardon, that's basically what you're doing. You're saying you're basically making a statement as, you know, that this person shouldn't have been convicted. There were reasons why, you know, perhaps there are circumstances that you don't think that they should have been, you know, convicted. You're basically erasing it from the record and restores, you know, say uh, voting rights in some circumstances. If you live in a state where having a felony record might not give you the opportunity to vote or, or you know, gun rights. Yeah. Um, is a major thing as well. There's actually a former congressman who I know who was convicted, uh, Duke Cunningham, who's sort of a, oh, yeah. a famous figure. Who Legendary figure. I remember talking to him a few years back, and he was saying that, you know, he was going to apply for sort of a pardon because that was one of the things he was really disappointed about, that he when he, you know, got out of prison, he wasn't going to be able to go hunting. It is yeah. a Talking Points memo, your former employee, that had the, the Dukes, wrote that, the Golden wrote that Dukes letter. Award. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that that awarded, like, things for, uh, gave out awards, mock awards for corruption. Correct. Yeah. Which all looks kind of, I mean, in the Donald Trump era, just is going to look so... Quaint. Mean, quaint. All right, yes. so, <laughs> so clemency is just the word for this power that the president has, and then there are two flavors of clemency, you get a pardon or you get a commutation. Right. So commutations, um, you know, the Obama administration has used them, I mean, on a pretty large scale, um, still disappointing, I think, some advocates, but on a pretty large scale since 2014 when they started sort of the, or they teamed up with outside organizations on what they called the Clemency Project 2014, um, which essentially was to help them sort of sort through this you know, long list of applications of federal prisoners, mostly drug offenders, almost entirely drug offenders, who um, were trying to get their sentence shortened. Um, a lot of them were people who, if they were sentenced today, wouldn't be given the same sentences that they would have um, if they were because, that they were. What were the, the past, What correct. were the factors in that? Why? Why? Why was what has changed? I, they're just sentencing laws. There's been some rollback, specifically crack cocaine. There's been a rollback in, you know, there used to be this incredible disparity, which is still exists, but I, it was a hundred, you know, a hundred to one or, um, uh, of that nature to say, if you had the same amount of crack and the same amount of crack cocaine, you would just have a huge I mean, the same disparity. amount of crack versus the same amount of just powder cocaine. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, there would be a huge disparity in how long your sentence was. And obviously that had a disparate impact on the African-American community. All right. Yeah. So the number of commutations, he's really, since this project to ramp him up, they have ramped him up. There have been nearly a thousand yeah. commutations. And these are, these are, this is getting people out of prison. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, last week, actually, we had uh, this guy, Jason Hernandez, uh, in, this, uh, in the studio here. Um, and it was just sort of crazy to talk to him because back in, this was, you know, three years, almost three years ago now, uh, when I talked to him the day after Christmas, shortly after he found out that Obama had commuted his sentence. And he was one of the first people who sort of, as part of this commutations push uh, had been um, released. And it was sort of just extraordinary because, you know, we had that 15 minute phone call and he, he was telling me about it, you know, what it felt like to sort of in that moment find out that you would no longer be dying in prison, yeah. um, which was sort of extraordinary. Now, because it's such like an unfamiliar news story, I think people may not necessarily know that executive clemency is actually one of the checks 
and balances hmm. in our system of government. Could you explain? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's defined in the constitution that it's a, it's a power that the president has a sort of a check on, um, you know, the judiciary in a lot of ways, you know, pardoning, I mean, is, is often been controversial, right? You talk about like the Mark Rick, uh, Rick scandal, um, in the late, you know, late days where, of where Clinton Bill Clinton right. pardoned this sort of creepy guy. Correct. Or, you know, look at Richard Nixon, um, you know, uh, Gerald Ford pardoned correct. him. Correct. Yeah. So those, uh, those are often controversial and often, you know, they're sort of handoffs, I guess that, you know, or give giveaways to um, important people or donors or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, this clemency project really isn't about that. This is more of a, you know, initiative do what the administration would say is sort of, you know, right some wrongs, um, some historic wrongs of people who are just spending w- way too far behind bars. And, you know, I mean, the cra- I think the, the, the crazy ones that really get me are the people who literally were going to die. And like, that was it. Like someone, you know, Jason Hernandez, for example, at 21 years old with, you know, barely a record was going to die. Like he was going to spend every single day for the rest of his life until he withered away and died in prison. And what was his crime? Out. So he was, uh, he was, his was a crack cocaine sentence. Yeah. So he got caught up in, um, you know, sort of, a, I, I guess some, it wasn't really gang related activity, but it was, you know, within a larger criminal organization, part of conspiracy. And a lot what you'll find out in a lot of these cases is it's ultimately is people who either, you know, decided to go to trial or it's people who refused to sort of snitch. Um, or were you sort of used by other people to basically get them to follow, a shorter yeah. sentence? Yeah. In, in the early years of the Obama administration, it also seemed to be people who had like reformed themselves yeah. or, or had been exemplary in some way. Mm-hmm. Is that still part of it? Or, or now that we're getting, you know, he's making more of a statement about laws now. It's a check on the judiciary. And every time they do this, they also put out a statement saying, you know, Congress ought to change these laws. Right. So, I mean, if you think this like in purely political um, terms, I think that there's a reason that, you know, that they sort of rolled it out this way and that, you know, if they had been letting people out sort of in mass um, earlier on, it's a big political issue and it's a big political liability. And the reason that they're part of the reason that there's such intense screening and they're not just saying, okay, you seem to meet all of the, you know, the the uh, guidelines that we laid out is because if there's ever a case where someone, you know, got out who was supposed to be behind bars, ultimately goes on to commit a crime, that's a huge political liability, um, obviously, and could sort of ruin things actually for people, you know, going forward and make it less likely that they were going to do that. Now, I think that, you know, I think that we are sort of imagining a world in which Clinton was going to be the next president um, and it would still sort of be something that would continue on. So the administration would want to be careful about. But I think that political calculus might sort of be thrown out the window at the end of the term. I mean, Obama could go pretty broad with this at the end if he wants to, because what's the what, what's the political fallback, right? So the number of uh, executive clemency actions could balloon in these next, next few weeks. weeks. Now, he's yeah. already far, far surpassed all the the previous presidents going back, uh, what, 50 years? Yeah, I think that's true. But also in terms of the scale of what was expected, I think even within the administration, um, we're looking at smaller numbers than were anticipated. I think, you know, when this was first hmm. announced, uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder was thinking that we'd have something along the lines of, you know, perhaps 10,000, up to 10,000 people, like thousands of people uh, who would be released uh, early in some capacity. Um, you know, we're almost to 1,000 now. Um, the The... The experts say that the world of people who uh, should be sort of included and qualify under clemency, uh, the clemency 
guidelines that were laid out by the administration is around 2,000. So, I mean, we're still like halfway halfway there with only, you know, days, basically weeks to go left in the administration. Now, there have been hundreds and hundreds of commutations mm-hmm. of President Obama saying these people are getting out of prison. They won't die there. There have been only a, a relative smattering of pardons. Yeah, it's true. What's up with that? I, I mean, it's. I think that I, we can do the math, but it's like double digits, and so is the number of turkeys. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, we'll be at 16 turkeys. Will that be because there's like it, two every year? You know, the pardon of the turkey, they actually, the turkey remains captive. <laughs> so it's not a very precise. Not, they just yeah. don't get executed. Do anyway. You, do you know yes. of any high-profile pardon campaigns that are already lobbying the White House to get this done in the last few weeks? You know, I think high-profile and pardon campaigns are sort of like terms that don't go together, right? This is like more of a behind-the-scenes sure. sort of action. And I mean, that's not true. I think that, you know, there's certainly the, the Edward Snowden one. Uh, which I think is just a stretch and um, probably isn't, I mean, you know, perhaps it will. Maybe I'll be, we've been proven wrong before in the past couple of weeks, but I just don't see that one as being. Sure. So why, why do you think they're stingier with the pardons than the commutations? I mean, because of the message, basically, that you're saying, I think, in a lot of ways. And also, you know, just traditionally, pardons have been saved towards the end of the term because everyone's a liability. You're basically saying, you know, the judicial system screwed up in some way here, in some massive way that I'm rectifying. And, you know, that's a that's a political liability in a lot of ways. So the commutation is just like this sentence was too harsh and the pardon Correct. was like everything about this was bogus. Correct. I'm yeah. throwing it out. And what's interesting, too, with the uh, with the more recent clemency actions is that in a lot of cases we're not see- – we're seeing um, the president basically set – new terms to maybe say if someone had a life sentence, now it's just reduced to 30 years, which like I did some of the calculations on this and you're talking about people who aren't going to be getting out still until like I think in some cases 2030. I mean, these are because basically the the guidelines that they laid out. Yeah. So not everyone's getting out right away. And a lot of them are sort of like, you know, uh, a lot of them are going to be there's going to be a rollout of them in 2017. There's going to be a rollout of them in 2018. There's been a number of people who've gotten out already because, you know, those people announced before. But for a lot of these cases, they're sort of making these people go through sort of a halfway house sort of initiative. So they don't get it's not like they find out that day and they get out necessarily. That was the case in a few cases early on where it was like just a couple of weeks and you're you're you know, on the land. So, so President Obama is handing this over to Donald Trump to carry out the remainder of, of, of his commutation. Here's the thing. Actually, I, I, I looked into this because I was curious about that. And that's not how like you basically can't do that. You can't reverse it. You can't re- the like because the president doesn't have the power to resentence someone. Right. Like right. you can only basically reduce yeah. the like, you know, the amount of time you can't like up it. Like <laughs> that's not how our system works. All right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, he, I mean, the people who have gotten clemency are in the clear. All right. right so, gobble, gobble. Yeah, in the, yeah. In the coming weeks, this is going to be something people want to watch out for, uh, the kind of actions President Obama takes and how many people he is willing to commute and or pardon. Uh, thank you, Ryan, sure. for walking us through all this distinction. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. Trump campaign, they'll that'll be completely uh, uh, you know 
canceled out by the fact that uh, there will be more jobs and more spending, uh, more revenue uh, from taxes because more people will have jobs. So uh, it's really a $0 infrastructure package, uh, according to the Trump campaign. So where do the jobs come from in this sort of situation? Because it sounds to me like this is the kind of infrastructure bill that you could just use to like provide a back-end reward to things that have already been built. Right. I mean, that is really the problem with the entire thing. Uh, the the normal group of people who invest in infrastructure uh, are would be the prime candidates here to take advantage of these tax breaks. Right now, they're probably in municipal bonds uh, that that are are funding infrastructure locally in local projects around the country. Uh, if these are more attractive to them, they'll simply just shift. Their, their dollars from funding these local projects to funding these uh, federally, uh, 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 these federal tax breaks to create other projects. Uh, so it's really just sort of shifting from one place to another, and it might be projects that would be built anyway. So what you're talking about is this plan would be attractive to private investors in municipal bonds who already do invest in municipal bonds. And get tax breaks for them. I mean, you know, municipal bonds are typically tax-free, but these would be even even bigger uh, incentives, and they would push people into them. Now, the second thing is that typically uh, private investors will not invest in an infrastructure project unless it has some sort of rate of return. Right. That's why I mentioned toll roads before. Um, you know, unless there's some sort of revenue stream, it, it's not even with these tax breaks, it's not really cost effective for a private developer to go ahead and spend all the money to do the engineering and build a road or or build, a, 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 you know, some sort of back end for for broadband infrastructure and electrical grid, things like that. Um what makes money, what creates that revenue stream are user fees. So whether it's tolls on a road or, or bridge fees, uh, uh, if you're going over a bridge, you pay $5, uh, things like that. Uh, so this seems like just an incentive to take things that are public, uh, which are roads uh, typically, and to privatize them and create a revenue stream for everyone driving on that road. And, of course, this revenue stream f goes back to private investors' pockets. I mean, because one of the things that I think that people tolerate bridge fees and toll roads is that they have this idea that the, 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 the quarter they're dropping in the bucket is eventually going to wind its back away around to, like, funding public schools or something. And I know, I, I know that you were reminded of – uh, a boondoggle that I was reminded of when I first started hearing about this plan, the um, what happened in Chicago with the uh, the selling of the public parking meters to a sovereign wealth fund. Now, the, I, I believe in that circumstance, Chicago did that as like a one time try attempt to backfill a huge municipal debt. But they've ended up like sort like salting off all of the revenue they could have made on public parking meters to the original investors. And now they don't have the freedom to shut down parking meters for like a festival or, or stuff like that. Right. That's correct. They got upfront money uh, to hand off these parking meters and the revenue collected from them for, I believe, 75 years. Yeah, it's a long to this time. this private fund. 
Yeah. And as you said, if they want to shut down the street for a festival or a parade or something, say something crazy like the Cubs winning the World (laughs) Series, uh, they will have to pay that company for the compensation for lost revenue on that day. Uh, And that's built into the contract. And there are all kinds of uh, uh, contracting issues like this in these public-private partnerships, which uh, this is, you know, this this could be the result of a Trump infrastructure plan. There's another one that I used as an example, which is a toll road that was recently put in from San Antonio to Austin, Texas. And the other way, of course, that private investors and developers save money and, and profit off of these projects is by not putting a lot of money into them when they build them. And so the engineering and, and drainage facilities in particular of this road were so mismanaged that every time it rains in that area, the nearby homes flood as a result of uh, what was diverted to build this road. And so this kind of cost-cutting uh, is endemic to a thing where, where it's not, you know, the infrastructure isn't being built based on public need or the public good. It's being built based on the profit. David, Dan, we've heard Democrats in Congress say, wow, you know, we can work with Trump on infrastructure, but this sounds like there, there's enough red flags that, they would probably not want to go along. Yeah, and I think that's starting to change, actually. Uh, Bernie Sanders yesterday or earlier this week put out uh, uh, this this real diatribe against Trump's infrastructure plan, saying it's just corporate tax breaks and welfare uh, for the rich. And he, he pl- vowed to reintroduce his plan, which actually is a $1 trillion infrastructure plan of direct spending over a 10-year period. Nancy Pelosi backed him up. Uh, uh, in a in a dear colleague letter to members of Congress, saying that 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 the plan was nothing more than a corporate tax scheme masquerading as an infrastructure plan. So I think Democrats are starting to figure out that this thing isn't really as advertised, and uh, you know they're going to have an opportunity to 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 you know put forward an alternative. Do you think Donald Trump cares about the specifics of the plan outlined by his guys? I know it's a Hard question to answer, but he himself has just said, we'll have a fund. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. agree. And uh, in fact, uh, they've already started to waver off this uh, pre-election plan that they've put forward. Uh, Steven Mnuchin, who uh, is rumored to be the Treasury Secretary choice, said that uh, they, they might look into something called an infrastructure bank to fund these things. That's where seed money from the government would go into this bank, which would then be able to leverage uh, by by you know making loans uh, to private interest to to try to uh, uh, increase the amount of money spent on infrastructure. That's actually something that was in Hillary Clinton's right. uh, plan for for infrastructure. Uh, and uh, you know even Steve Bannon, when he talked to the Hollywood Reporter, was talking about how uh, it, this would be the ultimate Keynesian kind of technique. And, and it sounded like he was talking about deficit spending because he was talking about taking advantage of low interest rates. And, and the only way to do that is to actually directly spend and borrow the money. Uh, so I, I think there is a certain confusion, as uh, there's likely to be throughout the next four years, in terms of what the actual policy details are. Uh, but the initial 
the only thing we have on paper from the Trump campaign slash transition is this this boondoggle all right. plan. Uh, well, then that's going to be something we're all going to have to watch out for because obviously no one has a clue what they're doing yet. Um, Dave, thank you so much for being back on the show. We look forward to having you back again. I imagine we're going to have numerous occasions to to chat about the coming Trump presidency. <laughs> it's a target-rich yeah, it environment, is. yes. Um, and, and you're one of the better snipers out there, my friend. Um, all right, that <laughs> was you. David Dan. He is the author of Chain of Title. If You should get that book. It is anger-inducing and yet hopeful because it does explain how some perfectly ordinary people uh, took on big banks, big fraudsters, and exposed them from what they, for what they are. Uh, it's one of the best books you'll read this year. Um, we will be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, Arthur Delaney, still Hi. riding along here. Yep. Um, and we are very fortunate to have our good friend uh, and congressional Capitol Hill reporter, Jen Bendry, with us today, too. Hi. Hey, Jen. Hey. Hey. Yeah. So nice to, so nice to have you here. So um, we wanted to get sort of like a read on what's been going on Capitol Hill during this period of Trump transition. We talked a lot about what Trump's been doing, but not a lot about what lawmakers have been doing. And I know that, that right now Democrats are going through some obvious leadership, potential leadership changes and adapting to a new regime in the executive branch. What's the general state of play up on Capitol Hill among congressional Democrats? Well, people like to talk about the hashtag Dems in disarray often around here, but it is... It is pretty true right now to say that about how they're doing. It's Um, always true. Well, I would say it's extra special true right now because because they just got clobbered in November and they still don't really understand what went wrong. Well, wait a minute. They uh, picked up seats in the House and the Senate. Not nearly as many as they thought they were going to pick up. Oh. And they also thought they were going to pick up enough seats in the Senate to win the Senate. Oops. So Not that's quite. some big boo-boos. And then they <laughs> lost the White House, P.S. Yeah. So um, the biggest drama is in the House, and that's where Nancy Pelosi is facing a challenger for her leadership post. Now, this happens every couple of years when they run for leadership posts. Right. Pelosi always assumes the top post. Steny Hoyer always assumes the next top post. And Jim Clyburn assumes the next. So there's kind of a repeat you know, yeah. cast of characters. And there, occasionally somebody might might challenge someone in that in those ranks, but it's never it's it's never a serious bid. But this year is it feels slightly different just because Democrats got beaten so badly in November. And the the person who's now challenging Nancy Pelosi is Tim Ryan from Ohio. Ohio. Congressman, yeah. Um, you know, he's coming Mahoning in Mahoning Valley, right? Do I have that right? Yeah, probably not important enough I'm for not me to sure. feel that trivial detail. He's like yeah. Ohio white guy. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's the face of the, you know, the the 
faction of the party that didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton. Right, yeah. So they're like, hey, we have an idea. We should put a white guy in our leadership to reflect what just happened in November, even though everyone else in leadership in Congress is a white guy. Right, yeah, so that's, I know. That's maybe not the best answer to what happened in November. And, um, and uh, could, could you describe Tim Ryan's politics a little bit? Like, are we talking a Bernie bro dynamic here? I don't think he's much of a Bernie bro. I mean, he's he's from what I know about him. He's you know, he's an Ohio Democrat. He's kind of he's into meditation and um, he's kind of a backbencher. Okay, but, but so he, he just, does he have a populist streak of any kind? Yeah, like what's what's the appeal to, to him my mind? That than... was what was missing from the Democrats. Their 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 approach this this election. He's trying to tap into that, I would say, but he's never risen to the surface as someone as a you know who would be a face on this angry populist you know piece of the Democratic Party. He's just a white guy from Ohio who says the party has to do something, so he's going to be the hero who stands up and tries to throw his name in the hat to reclaim the party. Um, he's clearly seizing on this populist wave that that didn't work out for Democrats. But the way things work in the House Democratic caucus is you got to have a lot of support to overturn, you know, to, to take out Nancy Pelosi. And I yeah. just that would be remarkable if he was able to take her out. I just don't see that happening. So he's doing this knowing that it probably won't work. I think so. I mean, he's going on TV nonstop, if, if anyone's noticed. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed. Making his case why he maybe should be the new face. But if you listen to what he's saying, his argument is basically, you know, our party needs something to change. I'm change. Put me in. And he doesn't really have any <laughs> exciting message behind him. You know, he's <laughs> like, we really screwed up with the white guys. I'm a white guy. It's like, Vote I, for me. I am the silent majority. Right. Kind of. But he's, he just doesn't have the, the you know, the groundswell of support. I will he's meditate no, like, my way into factory. He's no Bernie Sanders of the House Democratic sure. Caucus. He's, you know, he's a nice guy, but I just don't see him having this compelling message for everyone. So, de so Democrats, it sounds like, are mildly in disarray, but Nancy Pelosi will continue her reign. At this point, never say never, but never. I have a very hard time picturing anybody taking her out. I mean, the least of which, you know, there's many reasons why, but the least of which is that she is a dynamic fundraiser. Nobody can raise more money than her. And that is huge for getting yourself a leadership job. Yeah, it's true. You bring in the money, you get to lead. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, moving on to just sort of like the, the battles to come. We talked to David Dan on this podcast uh, this week about uh, infrastructure bill. And there's no clear picture of what the Trump infrastructure bill might look like. But uh, Democrat, some Democrats have signaled Chuck Schumer, uh, who, who will run the Senate after Harry Reid departs. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we can pretty much call that a lock right now, I think, um, has signaled that he'd be willing to work with Donald Trump on, on an infrastructure bill. Uh, I'm assuming that Schumer would be more inclined to work with him on a bill that was more of sort of a Keynesian outlay of government money. Uh, but there are people who say that, 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 that follow kind of what Mitch McConnell's thinking when Obama came to office, that if you provide bipartisan support for Donald Trump's uh, plans, you essentially uh, accord him a measure of success. And that uh, 
constant disruption is the key to telling the American people that the executive branch isn't working. I know that there's kind of like a divide now between people who might work with Donald Trump and maybe what you described as the hell no caucus. But who's likely to win those battles, especially on an issue of infrastructure, which has always been important enough for Dems to want to work with Republicans in the first place? So a couple of thoughts on that. The first part is um, the vast majority of Democrats in there will tell you that they are willing to work with Donald Trump. They're not. There's. There's very. They, that's what they've gone ahead and said. Yeah, they're. The past they're week. saying it in leadership. You're hearing it at the you know rank and file level. There's a handful of Democrats who are saying hell no, yeah. hell no, and they're kind of you know I think they want to emerge as the the face that will inspire the base. But but by and large, Democrats are like we're going to work with this guy as much as we don't agree with him on 20 million things, on the four things that we do agree with him on because they have no power in Congress right now. None. Right. So what are they going to do? They can roll over or they can fight or they can try to work with him on something. They're, of course, not going to get the credit, though, for passing an infrastructure bill. No, except— In fact, if, if they do—if it does end up being one of those big, like, spend-a-lot-of-money bills and Democrats provide Trump the cover to pass it, they're going to benefit— the Republicans who want to go on in, in the off-year election and argue that it's still big spending, big spending. So there's a problem with that. So in theory, they would love to pass a huge government spending infrastructure bill. That's a huge priority for the Democratic Party. But as as the days go by now, it's becoming more clear that what Trump wants to do is not that. He wants to pass right. an infrastructure bill that's built on tax breaks and helping out businesses. So the result wouldn't be investing and creating a lot of new jobs and new construction all over the country. It would be companies getting tax breaks to put basically more money into their own businesses and not people getting new jobs. And that's not what Democrats want. So then, therefore, you're going to start seeing it's already started happening. Prominent Democrats saying, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We said we wanted to work with you on infrastructure. But if that's how you're going to do it, we're out. Now, the groups like MoveOn.org came out with these harsh statements last week saying you shouldn't even say that you want to work with Trump on even areas that you agree with him. And then I so I wondered if the Democrats who were saying that they would agree that they would work with Trump, which is most Democrats really meant it, or that was just to uh, appear less intransigent <coughs> because Mitch McConnell's been getting beaten up for saying he would never work with President Obama, like, was this just a head fake and Democrats have planned to be uh, opposed to Trumpism all along? I don't think so. I think Democrats kind of they don't have the they don't get as nasty as Republicans. The they don't play as dirty. And so they'll, they'll lick their wounds from November. But they'll typically they'll be like, you know what? We will work with you. We believe in government. We believe in getting things done. They just don't get as nasty. So, no, I think there was no head fake. I think. I think that they were like, we're ready to work with you on what we can. And then they started getting signals from Trump that he maybe doesn't want to do the kind of infrastructure bill, for example, that they want. Uh, and that's made them back off a little bit. I think the move on statement you're talking about kind of blindsided a lot of them. And I think that it it's moved only the the handful who were on the fringes who are already pissed, who are like, whoa, OK, we got move on now so we can. Someone supports us being like all or nothing here. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a little it's support. Clever. Yeah. But that's a still it's still a minority of the Democrats. This may be a tricky question, but what do you think of that argument that Democrats working with the Trump administration on areas of policy agreement essentially validates his nasty, nasty campaign? 
I don't think that's fair because the campaigns are over and there's there's the campaigning version of of politicians and then there's the governing version of politicians and it's time to get stuff done. And so if you're in the minority party in both chambers and you don't control the White House, you have such little say on anything that if there's that their one silver lining could be that this this total wild card, weird, unpredictable president might actually want to work with them on a few things. That's the one silver lining I think they can hold on to because he's not a typical Republican. And don't forget he was a Democrat for like 20 years. So, may, there may not be a governing Trump, though. He may be an all-campaigning Trump. It could be, and it could be a Mike Pence filling in yeah. as, a, as a president Trump yeah. when, it, when it gets down to it in terms of passing bills. I just want to hit you with one question, and this hit might me. be a little bit left field. Um, but uh, obviously one of the big stories of the past two weeks has been the extent to which we've learned that Trump just doesn't seem to have any shame when it comes to blending uh, his new role as chief executive with his old role as a as a business executive. And he's been, you know, steadily we've got a stream of stories about how he's using the new trappings of his office to further his business empire. Do you sense that there's any kind – I know Democrats don't have much power. I don't think they could subpoena people or, or hold a lot of official hearings on the matter. But do you feel like there's any kind of – Resistance in the Democratic caucus on, on either side, of either either house of government, uh, to opposing what looks like uh, an emerging stream of steady corruption. I think they'll speak out whenever they can, but it, in the end, it doesn't. I mean, what can they do? They would say, you know, we're not going to do any of your judicial appointments until you release your tax returns. But they don't control that. They don't control the judicial process anymore. They don't they, control they've, got, they've got the filibuster. They described their their role in the Senate as a, a firewall. That's a little blown up, like overblown. <laughs> I mean, I, there are weird Senate rules where you can one senator could hold up a certain nominee. Yeah, and it's not a judge usually. Well, that's a separate issue. There are weird Senate rules. One Democrat could hold up a particular nominee forever, or you know, they can do stuff like that. But by and large, I just don't think they have they can't do very much well there's mm. there i mean there's there's constitutional bans on these practices but constitution can't enforce itself it needs a little leg up from democrats in disarray they have to get some republicans to agree with them in order to really push back on corruption yeah yeah dems okay. in disarray yeah dems in this array the array of <laughs> election losers that happened <laughs> yes okay um well uh uh, Jen, thanks for joining us and sharing what you know about what's been going on Capitol Hill. Uh, you should follow Jen Bendry on Twitter. It is Jay Bendry, right? At Jay Bendry. Yes. She's part of a very, very, very talented Huffington Post Capitol Hill team who you should follow because there's going to be a shit ton of action on Capitol Hill in the years to come. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you, Arthur. Follow me on Twitter, too. Yeah, he's I'm not telling you how. Yeah. Bye. Find out for yourself. Twitter, Arthur is now an egg on Twitter. So just remember, he's he's he sabotaged his own credibility on Twitter. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter, too. Figure out how. And I'd love to see you there. OK, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. 
This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by journalist and author David Dayan, as well as Huffington Post reporters Jen Bendery, Arthur Delaney, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, just send us an email at So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakre.